the only thing people need to do is ensure that they've got one more sat than they did this time last year. Now, you don't need an advisor. You don't need an accountant. You don't need a credit guy. All you need to do is have one more sat than you had last time. It doesn't get any simpler than this. And when I look at this and I think all of a sudden, we're no longer playing a zero-sum game. We now have a game that we can all participate in and we can all win. To me, I think the time locking has huge implications if we can actually harness the power of it. It can totally redefine finance. It redefines society full stop. Imagine being able to send a gift to your future, to your descendants that is effectively going to ensure that they can have the best opportunity to self-actualize and live their best life without having to worry about food and shelter and those sorts of things. And they can spend their time on just pursuing their dreams and aspirations. Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show, a Bitcoin philosophy show with Knut Svanholm and me, Luke the Pseudofin. Today, we're joined by our friend Peter Dunworth, Bitcoiner and financial advisor from Sydney, Australia. We'll get to know Peter and his experience introducing people to Bitcoin in his day to day life, and we cover a whirlwind of interesting topics from Bitcoin's immutable ledger and its informational nature to the importance of self-custody and the time-locking function of Bitcoin. We had a lot of fun with this one, and we know you'll enjoy it as well. As always, before we start, we'd like to quickly remind you that the best way to support the show is to send us a boost or stream us some sats using a value-for-value podcasting app such as Fountain or Breeze. If you get value from the show, please consider sending us some value back. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like, subscribe, and turn on notifications so you never miss a weekly episode. And finally, we want to thank today's sponsors, Orange Pill App, Wasabi Wallet, and Consensus Network. All their information is in the description, and we'll be talking more about them a little later. And so, without further ado, here is Peter Dunworth on the Freedom Footprint Show. Okay, Peter Dunworth, welcome to the Freedom Footprint Show. Happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Big fan of the show and big fan of both of your work. So it's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you here, Peter. Uh, It's been a a while since last we spoke, but we we speak with regular intervals, so one could say, or irregular intervals, maybe. (laughs) That's true. I always enjoy talking to you. I I view you as uh, the man, the myth, the legend, the maker of (laughs) legs. My favorite babe of all time, so... Oh, thank you for that. And uh, we're going to meet in person for the first time, like just a couple of days from now, since I'm about to to travel to Australia. I dread the flight, but I'm looking forward to seeing Sydney and everyone down there. I can tell you there's a lot of excitement about your arrival down here. I have uh, been away two weeks ago with a whole heap of Bitcoiners who are going to be at this uh, Bitcoin Alive in Sydney, which is our first Bitcoin-only conference. And literally everyone there is a huge Canute fan, including myself. So it's it's going to be great. You'll be it'll be yeah. hard to leave, hopefully. So, <laughs> uh, it, yeah, I still have to pinch myself every time I hear that a single person is wanting to see me for some odd reason. Yeah, but <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that a lot. Do you what, what do you know about the conference? I don't know how involved you are. I guess you're involved somehow, right? And you know at least know the the people that. 
organize the thing. Great bunch of guys. They've worked their guts out to basically put on a Bitcoin only event. They're real Bitcoiners. They've basically only only doing this to push Bitcoin and push Bitcoin forward, which is really tough to do to turn down money from crypto because it's very easy money to take and there's a lot more of it than the Bitcoin industry. But these guys are, I guess, true to label and, you know, real Bitcoiners, you know, they've got Bitcoin's interests um, at heart. They're basically putting their blood, sweat and tears into putting on this event. Um, they've worked really hard. They've got a lot of buy-in from from the Australian community with respect to that. And it should be a good turnout. So, you know, your your headline act there, which everyone's really looking forward to seeing. So Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet I'd better better deliver than uh <laughs> so we'll 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 see. I will have a long flight to to come up with a talk. <laughs> I guess. A lot of time or, to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The industry, that's that's such a um uh, for for me, like whenever whenever someone at a conference or whatever tells me that they're in the industry in general, that means they're a shitcoiner. If if you're <laughs> if you say that you're oh oh you're into Bitcoin, I'm in the industry. That's definitely a shitcoiner. Another another tell is a uh, I heart uh, like I love Bitcoin cap. That's a shitcoiner. <laughs> Yeah, and you get better and better. Your your sort of shit corner gaydar gets better and better over time. <laughs> it's 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 so funny because I haven't had that pleasure of going to a host of different conferences. Like you know, we've maybe it's probably five years coming up to five years ago now. I went to Consensus in New York, and mm-hmm. you know, they promised to sell two thousand tickets. It turned into a an absolute jungle. There were eight thousand tickets sold, and it was meant to be, you know, our Bitcoin focus, but it turned into like an absolute zoo. It was at the time of that whole ICO in a box craze and you, you pick up things and it's like, I'm, it, it was a zoo and I don't like being yeah. big crowds. I was like, yeah, this isn't, you know, what I really think I signed up for. Is that like just a, a real life version of fractional reserve lending right there? 2,000 tickets promised, 8,000 given. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, a flexible supply cap. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Monetary politics and in, in a nutshell. Consensus five years ago, that would be around the time of the, uh, um, hash, uh, the, the, the uh, fork wars or the block size wars. The, Correct term is the block size wars, right? Yeah. Or was it yeah. after or before that? It, it was May 2018 or April. All right. So after. Yeah. yeah so all it was right. Just after. So there was sort of that, there was almost, um, you know, the dispute was resolved, yeah. so to speak. But there was still, still, I think, some overhang tension. And consensus is, I think, run by Coindesk, which is fundamentally <laughs> a DCG company. So, yeah. Um, you know, they've got a lot of interests in the crypto space. So, you know, for them to be solely focused on Bitcoin, I don't think it's, there's just too many different incentives for them to be really aligned with Bitcoin 100%. Yeah. This is funny because like, that's around the time I went to my first cr- ever crypto conference. And this was an event called Blockspo in Stockholm. And I went there to see Richard Hart. Yeah. <laughs> First and foremost, because that's b- before he turned into a, a, a shitcoiner. He was a very good like advocate for Bitcoin. And he, he was, you know, completely, uh, how do I say this? Yeah, he was completely brutal in his criticism of everything else. So he was a really good force for Bitcoin back then. 
and then the the price had just dropped eighty percent. Like so, this was the beginning of two thousand eighteen, and I, I felt like the only Bitcoiner at the conference. Everyone else was a shitcoiner. It was a token for fucking soccer games and stuff or football games. Everything was a token, and they had politicians on stage and, and whatnot. And uh, Richard Hart just changed his narrative that day, and I confronted wow. him about it at the party later that evening. And he told me that he wanted to have his own coin and, and you know, uh, get the quick bucks and buy the Lambo. So he basically admitted to me that he was going to turn into a shit coiner that very night. Wow. And uh, I thought he was joking. To be honest, I thought he was joking because he was such a such a good maxi before that, and then he just you know, I don't know he's running around in his Gucci pyjamas and whatever and trying to get attention, and uh, sadly enough, it's working. So like, yeah, <laughs> I've, I've got to say I'm really disappointed hearing that. Like Richard Hart is a fabulous raconteur, phenomenal debater, and a formidable opponent. He is not stupid. And this is what's really sad about yeah. this space is that you have great advocates who end up, you know, just turning to the dark side for one of a better term and, you know, selling their soul to the devil for a quick buck. And it's like, oh gosh, like really? Like, you know, you were such a great advocate. You had the opportunity to literally yeah. change the world and you sold it for a Gucci handbag. Like, come on, man. Like yeah, you yeah. can't, you can't wait five or 10 years till you know, your Bitcoin bags become whatever you want them to be. You've got to go out there and sell your ass to get a yeah, yeah. Gucci. Oh my God. I'm just like, I, I, it's I, disappointing because they've got so much promise. Exactly. And I, I view that as like one of the first lessons that Bitcoin teaches you. How many, you know, immoral people there are out there and what people are, what lengths uh, people are willing to go to to make a quick buck. Yeah, and how, how 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 rotten the world is in that sense. Like how many, first and foremost, bad m malevolent people uh, there are, and also how many gullible people there are that just don't do their research but act as if they had. And it's just depressing. Sadly, I don't think that cycle really is going to change for a long time until everyone's gone no. through it. So, yeah. you know, everyone kind of has to do their own crucial work in getting sold of you know basically a shitcoin going down the rabbit hole, realizing that that was a mistake, thinking about all of the things that could have been, and then eventually just going back to Bitcoin. But this is where there are so many things I'm thrilled to be talking to you about tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully we get to cover. Yeah, we shouldn't, we, we, talk yeah, we, shouldn't we shouldn't talk about shit coiners. Like that's uh, wasting our time, I guess. I, I, do, I, I just, I live by the, like you, you can sell your soul and you can get paid a lot for it, but there's no refund. You can only sell it once. And that's, then it belongs to it. someone else. Like, <laughs> Correct. So, so that's that's the thing. If you sell your soul, you don't have a soul anymore. <laughs> and I, I kind of like my soul, so I'd like to keep it. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel the same way. And you know, yeah. what's really interesting about Bitcoin and its immutable ledger is that not only do you have to live with what you do, but your wallet history is going to show every single one of your descendants in perpetuity exactly how you've behaved. <laughs> that's like, a scary thought <laughs> think about but, that like yeah you think you know if you think about it not not sort of picking on say richard because you know i'm sure there's a lot of redeeming qualities about him too but you know he has say a big stack of bitcoin he's transacted he's moved it he's done this done that and then you know his descendants into the future he knew exactly what he was saying as a bitcoin maxi 
sells uh, his yeah. soul to the devil, and then his his grandchildren's grandchildren get to know that he was one of the first pioneers and yeah. then sold out. Yeah, what a thing to live with. <laughs> but so, I, I don't think people like that are planning on having a legacy like at all. Or at least you're you're nihilistic enough to 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 just think that the the I die and the problem goes away. And in a way that's true. Like if if death is truly the same thing as, you know, pre-birth, all the all the moral dilemmas disappear after you die. But I, I, I view it as slightly different. I view it as like the the scarcity of a human lifetime is what gives it value and what gives it like what that's why you should be ethical because your time is scarce. <laughs> you, you don't get a, a chance to redeem yourself in the afterlife. Like this is the only shot you've got to leave the, the world a, a, a bit better than you entered it. And that's like what what what, what better what better way to spend your time on uh, spend your precious minutes on on this earth than to try to leave it a, a bit better than you uh, entered it. It's such a simple it, philosophy, but it's very difficult to live live by or some a lot of people have trouble living by it and one thing i think that is um a little bit different to that view is that i think there is in some way shape or form you are born into the world with some level of charming debit or credit which you in, inherit in some way shape or form from from your parents yeah, yeah. And, i can buy that but like everyone everyone is born into something that their parents gave them like <laughs> The, the the environment they are born into is dependent on what the par- their parents did the generation back and the grandparents and everything. So, yeah. But we're here now and literally the best part about this is we get to make a difference. And I sort of feel like we are on the precipice of an enormous societal change. And, yeah. you know, I really think that, you know, the work you've done in moving forward, like, <laughs> you know, it's funny reading everything divided by 21 million. I'm like, Every sentence in that is so dense. Under Twitter, <laughs> sit down and I read it and I'm like, I just have to sit back and I'm like, oh, I'll just have to think about that for a minute. This this little book that you wrote <laughs> took me so <laughs> long to read because it had my brain just worrying. And I'm like, oh my God. And so what I ended up doing, you'll love this. It's listening to it on audiobook, so I couldn't stop it. I just listened to it like you were telling me a podcast. So <laughs> Oh, you're Pretty making me, making me blush here. <laughs> yeah, funny. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, but it's uh, like it's conversations like this that that uh, I I couldn't have written anything about Bitcoin without these conversations, or at least I couldn't have you know continued to write, come up with new stuff about Bitcoin, or uh, well, regurgitate stuff about Bitcoin in different ways. Like the it, it's all. Uh, some sort of collective knowledge, I think, even though I don't believe in collectivism, but but I think ideas are out there and we just have to, you know, it's like that with all creativity. It feels like it's coming from the outside and you can't really control what, what thoughts uh, pop up in your brain. There's no, there's no conscious, you know, conjuring up of your next thought. It just happens and you just have to be... Yeah, and you just have to be attuned to that. You you just have to have the like the radio on the right frequency, so you hear the thought when it's there. And it's the same yeah. with songwriting or anything. Like, yeah, I I think that's how how insights happen. It's like you you start putting two and two together, and if you listen to what where that leads you, then you have a bigger better chance at at uh, you know understanding something. What well, one thing that blows me away about this space is 
a couple of things. Firstly, is the diversity of thought in in this space around yeah. a relatively simple tool. You think, well, it's money or it's digital value or it's a messaging system, whatever you want to define it, whatever you know has been your lived experience, yeah. you apply to this technology, which I think is very unique. And what what's really funny to me is is that you know people from all different walks of life can look at this thing, spend an inordinate amount of time looking at it, understanding it, and draw completely different conclusions for it that are at the same time very different from a school of thought that you know you would have heard before, but is con- completely congruent with how you feel or the values that you ascribe to to Bitcoin itself. And this is where, for me, I've never seen a an opportunity for mankind, like speaking or thinking on the biggest no. of scales, um, a, an organization tool that has the ability to align incentives on a scale like this. Yeah. And, you know, we've got nation states, you know, if you look at it from the little, you've got the, the individual, then you've got, you know, say your local team, and then you've got a, you know, a major, say, football team or You've got a state that you live in, and then you've got the country you live in, and then you may have a religion, and this is all ways of organizing people into a similar way of thinking or effectively aligning incentives. And yeah, what I, what I find really beautiful about this is, is that for the first time in history, I see an opportunity to incentivize 8 billion people to run the same way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, oh my God, like... We've got to give this a crack. We've got to put as much time and effort into helping achieve this as possible. Because what happens when 8 billion humans are running the same way for the first time and not at each other? Yeah. This is the opportunity I look at in front of us. And I think if people really understood that, like it'd just be tools down. Let's just, let's get adoption happening and let's make this happen. Whatever we've got to do, we just do it. Yeah. And before Bitcoin, like I I felt so alone as uh, having the thoughts I had. And then yeah. Bitcoin happens and you have like, I remember this with, with Breedlove, for instance, when he showed up on the scene, he had just written the number zero on Bitcoin. And yeah. it, it was like reading something that came out of my brain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but more well-written. And I, uh, <laughs> and I was so, like, holy shit, this, uh, I aligned with this person very well. And then we had a couple of conversations and uh, it turns out we, we, we align on so many values and so many things. And we're from completely different backgrounds. I mean, he's religious. I'm an atheist. And, and uh, we've read, uh, we had read like completely different books. We, we both read a ton of books, but completely different books and still landed on like the same, <laughs> same conclusions of, about this thing. Yeah. And that's what Bitcoin does. It's, it's, uh, it's really weird like that. And, and as you say that we can pull in the same direction. Uh, the way I see it, and uh, th- th- this is something that came from from writing this book behind me, the Praxeology book, which is coming out as soon as possible. I uh, Unfortunately, it won't be out before uh, Australia, but I'm uh, planning yeah. to have it released before Miami. Uh, in Austrian economics, we talk about uh, biological competition and catalactic, catalactic competition. Biological competition is, uh, you know, lions fighting for the share of the, the game that they caught. Uh, and you know, winner takes all, you fight over resources. Catalactic competition is the free market where you, you trade with one another and do things voluntarily and then everyone benefits in the long run because like that's how you get ahead and you get the division of labor and, and everything. And I think Bitcoin might just have introduced a 
yet another way of like your biological competition, catalytic competition, and then Bitcoin. It's a, because it uh, aligns our incentives so that we don't even have to, you know, compete for market share anymore. We can just collaborate. Like if uh, I run into this with the, um, I've used a, a couple of different publishers. I, uh, you know, I've self-published my first books. And then I got contracted by Apricot Media and then subsequently Consensus Network, whom I'm now collaborating more and more with. And we realized like these publishing houses and these companies that do the same thing in Bitcoin, they can just collaborate and everyone wins because we all benefit from Bitcoiners succeeding. So there's no incentive to not collaborate. It's all yeah. collaboration. And I, I, and I think about that a lot. And I think about like, when I extrapolate that vector into the future, I don't see that going away because like Bitcoin's like there's, there's a hyper Bitcoinization is a fictitious point that will never play out completely. You can still trade other stuff than Bitcoin, but it's I still think. there. So, so the vector is still there, which means the, the incentives are still aligned and we can still, you know, all benefit from collaborating. We don't even have to fight over, you know, catalactically and try to to lower prices to 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 acquire customers it's even a level above catalactic competition and i find it bizarre that that is it seems to be true it, it's mind-blowing to think about that and this is where say if i apply it to my business and just for anyone listening who's not familiar with what i do i i run a multi-family oh, yeah. office um, we skip skip the most of the intro. So so yeah yeah. Please introduce yourself, Peter, properly. Uh, so uh, my name's Peter Dunworth. I, I run a multi-family business in in Sydney, which looks after high net worth families. We've got maybe a dozen dozen families that we look after, and my job is to help reduce risk in their portfolio and help out for fall in the market. We give advice across property shares, bonds. Basically, venture capital, private equity, and my favorite asset, alternative asset of all time, um, by a clear winner is Bitcoin, obviously. So I basically am responsible and charged with basically helping make, uh, helping clients make smarter choices with their money. And, um, part of the, the background, which we'll tell the story a little bit later, but one of the things that I try and do is try and get the best Bitcoiners from around the world to come and have a chat to, to my clients and talk about Bitcoin with them. And, for the reason that they get sick of hearing my voice talking about it. So I want a different voice come and talk to them. And Knut, you very kindly um, have come and talked to us a number of times. And we'll tell that story a little bit later because it's quite funny. But, um, you know, you are really well received. And, you know, clients get to speak to the best Bitcoiners on earth and hear their, their you know, their insights as to what they've learned, basically staring at this thing for 10,000 hours. So that's what I do. And what, what a, to your point that we were talking about previously, the catalytic and biological sort of competition that runs. What I look at from, say, my, my business point of view and an investment point of view, because I think most Bitcoiners come to Bitcoin to get rich and then they find out there are all these other wonderful things that are attached to it. But if, if I look at how success is determined in my line of work, it's really very complicated. And if you look at it from a client perspective, the, the number of advisors and the number of people working on achieving the outcomes that they want to achieve or maximizing the outcomes that they want to achieve, let me just go through a number of basically advisors that a typical family would have. They would have at least one investment advisor. So they might have two, including myself. They'll have an accountant. They'll have a specialized accountant. They'll have a lawyer or a solicitor. We call it in Australia. 
They would also have a banker, a credit guy who basically helps them get access to it. And they'd have an estate planning lawyer to ensure that all of their, their affairs are looked after when they leave. And I look at that and I've got seven to eight individuals who are helping maximize a client's outcome when it comes to the fiat standard. And I look at this and I think, wow, that is an enormous amount of energy and effort applied to producing a fiat outcome. And then when I compare this to Bitcoin and I'm like, the only thing people need to do is ensure that they've got one more sat than they did this time last year. Now, you don't need an advisor. You don't need an account. You don't need a second account or a third investment advisor. You don't need a credit guy. All you need to do is have one more sat than you had last time. It doesn't get any simpler than this. And when I look at this and I think, all of a sudden, we're no longer playing a zero-sum game. And so to tie that really lengthy analogy back into what you're saying, I agree wholeheartedly with that in that we've got a really complicated game happening right now that 99% of the world's playing. And to tell you the truth, it's a really shitty game because for, it, for someone to win, someone has to lose pretty much. Pretty and much. That's not that, not that's entirely, not, but pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Directionally, that statement's correct. But it is, it is. Yeah, for the first time in history, we now have a game that we can all participate in and we can all win. And we're in control of that winning. We don't have to, at the behest of someone else, have someone else suffer or lose. We can effectively all win together. And this is where, back to that conversation around incentives, all of a sudden, your incentives and my incentives and Luke's incentives, they're all aligned. And we can run full steam at it. And this is where, say, from a personal point of view, I look at um, and I think we might have had a chat about this in the past. I look at the Maslow's needs hierarchy, and I think Bitcoin gives us the greatest opportunity on a personal level to ascend that value staircase as quickly as possible. My thinking is, is that if you put in an uncomfortable amount of your, your net worth into Bitcoin, well, each layer of the Maslow's needs hierarchy represents fundamentally a halving period. And so within three or four halving periods- Oh, uh, that's beautiful. You're effectively self-actualizing. So you're yeah. doing God's work. You're getting to express yourself in your highest form. And my thoughts just can't help but go to what happens when we're in a world where 8 billion people are self-actualizing and Bitcoin's a tool that it effectively helps humanity get there in the fastest way possible. Gives me yeah. goosebumps thinking about it, but yeah. I'm, I'm seeing a t-shirt in my head with Maslow's escalator. <laughs> <laughs> We escalate up the pyramid. Yeah. We can't all have one more set than we did last year, though. That, that, that doesn't compute on a Bitcoin standard, does it? Like, at least not after the year 2140, where, right. where everyone's stack will diminish and not <laughs> grow, even though it can still grow in purchasing power, which is one of those mind-fucky things that are, are so hard to wrap your head around. I think I may have come up with something which helps people understand the everything divided by 21 million. <laughs> and, and this is where, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking and talking about this because fundamentally my job is to watch number go up and tell clients to buy it so it goes up and the rest of it. But when you think about this, and, and this comes back to, you know, just Econ 101, what I think a lot of people fail to understand about that meme, everything divided by 21 million, is fundamentally that is what will happen over a long enough time frame. And... What, what I think people really struggle with at the moment is they don't understand that, that effectively Bitcoin will end up being 99.99999% of all assets on earth 
and then the bonds, property, shares, and everything else will just take up a very small portion of it. And I think the reason why they don't understand that is because they don't understand that market cap of an asset is downstream of price. Price is determined at margin. And then downstream of that, you calculate the market cap. Exactly. Uh, Once people understand that economic thought, it usually helps overcome the hurdle of, oh, but there's only, you know, $2,000 trillion worth of value on Earth, so there's no way there could be $2,001 trillion worth of value. It's like irrelevant. You're not thinking about this properly. You need to understand basically market cap being downstream of price determined at the margin. Yeah, and also like the uh, it, it, you're measuring the system from within the system, so it doesn't really. The, how do you measure the value of money? It's, uh, yeah, I think it was Hayek that said that uh, money should not be a noun; it should be an adjective, moneyness, because that's what it is. It's just how saleable the good is. Uh, so we, we treat money as if it's a uh, noun and as if it's a fixed thing, but it's not. It's an adjective. Uh, a good is more or less saleable. And the most saleable good is what we commonly refer to as as money, but other things are money too. Like real estate is money, and stocks and bonds, and you know, Apple stock is money, and in prisons, uh, cigarettes are money. There's a lot of things that function as money in society. As it's just a medium of exchange, basically. The thing about Bitcoin is that it scores higher on, on every, all of the six, or I would say seven. Uh, properties of money than ever, everything that preceded it, because it's it, it's so different from everything that preceded it. The the way I view it now is like the, here's another layer. We talked about the layers of biological, catalactic, and Bitcoin competition. Another way to look at that is the layers of ownership. So so like ownership, as opposed to possession, is ownership is the legal relationship. It's contractual, right? Uh, you I, I can own the headphones you have on now but you're in possession of them and you can choose to say, fuck you, Knut, I'm not giving them back like because you possess them, but which is basically what 6102 is. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, or, or it's a central bank refusing to give the money back to Zimbabwe or whatever. Uh, <laughs> but cool. Bitcoin, you, you can't even possess a Bitcoin. All you can do is know a secret. Yeah. So it's so it's so informational that it's it's just pure information. And you know the chapter in Everything Divided where I, I talk about when you memorize your seed phrase, you're, you are your Bitcoins. You now you are Bitcoin, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, But that's true for all Bitcoins. It's all in all of our heads. It's all just keeping a secret. Whoever knows yeah. the secrets has the ability to use the, those Bitcoins at some point in time. It doesn't matter if it's one owner or many owners. The information about the asset is the asset, and this is what that entails. It's all in our heads. So, yeah. uh, and that's such a mindfuck because to me, <laughs> to me, that means we had this ability all along, and we had the perfect way of organizing ourselves. This agreement on a fixed set of rules, rules without rulers, uh, a perfect representation of all you need is love as an equation. That's all Satoshi's equation did. It unlocked this power we had within us already. And that's just, I know it's new age as fuck, but I can't argue against it. But well, yeah. it makes sense. And you've, uh, and this is the funny thing I, I look at is that Bitcoiners go down effectively a rabbit hole. And it's not really so much a rabbit hole. It's more like falling off the ugly tree. 
and basically whacking your head on every branch on the way down. And it effectively beats your brain into a critical thinking machine. Yeah. And then when you say stuff like that, most people would go, oh, cannot here, awesome. here like, go. I hear that. I'm like, I, I totally understand that, that conceptual yeah. framework that you've put together. And sort of to make light of that thought that, you know, your Bitcoins are in your head and you are Bitcoin. What, what I find really amusing is, is that, you know, think about this technology if it existed two to 5,000 years ago, you know, and think about the Great Pyramids. Those Great Pyramids were built to effectively store wealth for the pharaohs to take them into the afterlife. Yeah. And to think all that time and energy that's lasted 5,000 years, <laughs> all of a sudden, those pharaohs wouldn't have needed these big tombs and all this gold and the rest of it. They could have remembered no. 12 words in their head and been thrown in the desert. We'd never have them. So, Or but maybe they did. Maybe that's what uh, made them you know, effective enough to build the pyramids in the first place because they had a system that functioned as perfect money. <laughs> I don't think they did. But anyway, uh, the, the, I love the tree analogy because whenever you fall off a tree, you event eventually end up on the ground and you become grounded. And that's like... <laughs> Your your back your your feet are back on the ground. You yeah. can still have your head in the clouds, but as long as your feet are on the ground, you're you're safe. Like it's a it's a nice little visualization or metaphor there. Yeah, it's, it's almost like it when you do the work and you go down this rabbit hole. I think there's a level of curiosity that all Bitcoiners have, and you just keep digging, turning over rocks, and you know studying new things. It when you meet a fellow traveler. On this road, regardless, say back to the breed love analogy that you know he's he's very religious, you know the polar opposite of you. You can't. Yeah, have, um, I wouldn't say opposite, he, but uh, well, <laughs> yeah, I have. He well, has a set of beliefs that I don't. Uh, that yeah, it's, it, lack it, lack of is not opposite. True, true. <laughs> good point. Thank you. But let, let's just say um, you have two very different ideologies on on how you view religion and. Despite that difference of opinion, you know, you're on the road of Bitcoin and can have a mutual meeting of the minds, a huge amount of respect for one another. And despite the fact you don't agree on that one thing, doesn't um, omit the fact that for the majority of things in life, you have uh, effectively the same outlook or a very similar outlook. Exactly. Um and I find it so funny. This is another thing. I'm spoiling all the ideas for the conference now, but this will be released after the conference. So it's only oh, for your ears. But uh, one thing I've been thinking about lately is how Pascal's wager actually works on on Bitcoin. If if by God you mean Bitcoin, yeah. Uh, the, uh, Pascal's wager say I I, I is the Peterson thing. I I uh, act as if God exists. Uh, because uh, the, the the cost of not doing so, if it happens to be true, is infinitely bad, and the the upside is infinitely high. So there's no reason not to. Uh, and the, the problem with the arguments, as I see it, is that oh, it just it, it refuses to take any of the other five thousand religions into consideration. So, the, it's just so there's no, there's no Thor or Zeus or whatever in it. But on if by God you mean Bitcoin, so like I act as if Bitcoin exists. You actually increase its chances of, of you know, uh, winning. <laughs> uh, yeah. Bitcoin requires us to act as if it exists in order for it to exist. Yeah, and, and each, if we don't, e then it doesn't. Oh, yeah, and uh, you you can say yeah, but 
enough other people do that already. Yes, but you as a believing node, the value of a communications network is equal to the, the square of its number of users. So you add value exponentially by acting as if Bitcoin exists. Yeah. How's that for a philosophy show, Luke? Yeah, you guys are doing great. This is wonderful. <laughs> I mean, uh, dove right in too, and uh, I, I, uh, I'm impressed. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You Wait till we get to the meaty stuff. Uh, no, no, credit to you both. This is great. <laughs> Today's show is brought to you by our sponsors. First up, Orange Pill app. Stack friends who stack sats. Meet like-minded Bitcoiners near you and speed up hyper-Bitcoinization with Orange Pill app. Bitcoin isn't an online-only phenomenon, and Orange Pill app helps facilitate the social layer, connecting Bitcoiners in their local area. The best part is it maintains your privacy through the whole process, and since you have to subscribe to access the app, you know that everyone there is high signal and cares about Bitcoin. A great new feature is events. You can now create local events and meetups right from the Orange Pill app to help build your local community while maintaining the Bitcoin-only signal. Orange Pill app is available on iOS and Android. Download now. Next up, Wasabi Wallet, an open-source, non-custodial desktop Bitcoin wallet that is trustless, easy to use, and affordable. It has CoinJoin built in to facilitate your privacy. Every Bitcoin transaction leaves a clear footprint, but with Wasabi, you can make sure that others can't track your steps and threaten your sovereignty. Just send your coins to Wasabi, wait, and your coins will be private on the other end. It's open source, trustless by design, and non-custodial. You have full control over your keys. Check it out now at wasabiwallet.io. Double check that link. That's wasabiwallet.io. And maybe just to, to pull it back a little bit, can we uh, can we get a, a little more of uh, your background, Peter? How you how you found Bitcoin and got into it, and maybe then also how you, the two of you originally connected? Because I know there's some history there. Thanks for pulling us back to to the origin story for me. I have a fairly typical origin story. I have a shoot myself in the foot moment where Canute, you know, my brother, uh, my brother said to me back in 2011 or. Basically, early days. Bitcoin was three dollars a Bitcoin. And then he said, "Hey, I'm going to get some of this stuff. I think it's, you know, think it could work. Why don't you? Why don't you buy some?" And the, the lessons you learn in Bitcoin it forever humbles you. And you know, my arrogant, stupid self said, "Ah, that'll never work. Governments will shut it down. There'll be a new new coin." Like all of the arguments you could literally list them. I was personally responsible for all of those. And. Uh, Sadly for me, it, um, it's been a very, very expensive mistake. But um, the beauty of it, though, is that um, I've been very fortunate in that my brother has effectively sponsored my knowledge gain in this space where there wasn't a lot of knowledge to be had. So in 2013, he moved to San Francisco, set up a Bitcoin business. And, you know, my brother and I get along fabulously. He's my best mate. And, you know, we talk every other day, um, if not every day. And um, we get to talk about a whole host of things. And at a time when there wasn't a great deal of education, I got effectively a first class honors degree listening to him talk about Bitcoin and basically asking questions and, you know, putting problems to him and uh, things that I thought would be an issue with Bitcoin. And he was very patient with me and basically answered most of my questions. And so that took me through from 2011 through to 2016. And then kind of discovered Reddit and started investing money for myself and for clients. So 
Uh, we've been at this for nearly seven years now, where we advise clients to effectively put their money into Bitcoin on a personal level. If you understood just how bad everything else was out there, when you look at stocks, bonds, property, and shares, boy, oh boy, the, the price of Bitcoin would be so much higher. Clients would be allocated so much higher to Bitcoin than, than they are now. So it, it shocks me every day that, that it's not, but, um, it still comes down to from an investment framework and looking at it from a risk perspective, Bitcoin is fundamentally a binary outcome. It is literally everything divided by 21 million or it's a fat donut. So it's either the infinity or it's just half of the infinity, which is a zero. <laughs> and, um, I'm, I'm very confident that it's going to be the infinity, not the zero. And hence why we, we strongly advise clients to put in anywhere from five to 10% of their assets. And, um, there's actually only been one client who I said to stop buying Bitcoin to. And, and that client had his wife turn around and say to them, if you buy any more Bitcoin, I'm going to divorce you. <laughs> so I said to him, look, let's, let's not do that. Let's, uh, lose the battle, win the war, and uh, we'll figure out how to buy more Bitcoin down the road. So um, it's a fun journey for me to go on with clients, and I have a lot of fun with it. And um, back to um, how, how I met Knut, basically follow him on Twitter, watching what he does, great posts, um, a, a very, very good shit poster on top of being a great thought leader too. So aren't those the same thing? I thought they no. were. No, they're not. There's, there's a very fine line. There are some people who are dedicated shit posters who are fabulous at it and complete savages. Although it looks like, you know, in light of what Lynn Oldham was talking about today on Twitter, it turns out, you know, a great mind can be a great shit poster too with a dig. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Elon debunking there. Yeah, yeah. That was fun. I was like, uh, wow, that's savage. Yeah. But, um, so, so could it, I think I would have. Literally, whenever you're on Twitter or whenever I was on Twitter, probably around 2018, I think, sort of made a migration from Reddit to Twitter and thought, oh, wow, look at this information I get to you know, have access to effectively for free. I get to basically find out what Knut and other thought leaders in this space are thinking in real time. And I'm like, what a fabulous tool. And it's free. I'm like, I'd pay thousands of dollars a year for that that account. It's mind-blowing, you know, the level of knowledge, you know, and the things you can learn on that. And Knut, you, you've been fabulous at sharing your thoughts on this. Yeah. And it's so easy to just share your thoughts. Like, I love this format that at least used to be with 140 characters. So you had to, you were forced to condense your thoughts and that makes yeah. it better. That makes your writing better. And that was a very good thing. Like, uh, it, it improved your writing skills just just posting on Twitter, no matter if you posted shit posty things or philosophical things or whatever, it's just, uh, yeah. That would it's explain great fun. why I could only read a, a sentence of everything divided by 21 yeah. without putting it down. <laughs> too much time on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's some of it is also the, uh, the editing tool I was using at the time that made it forced me to shorten the sentences all the time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I've been better at telling the tool to fuck off, uh, writing this new one. Uh, I hope at least. <laughs> yeah, you've got a human well, well, editing tool this time. We'll we'll have to talk uh, talk about uh, the new new book a little little more on another another pod. And how, yeah, yeah, how you made it. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I I'd mean, love uh, to hear that. Yeah, the, I, I can do a long TLDR about it. I, I started writing this thing in um, December. 
And I based it off of a, a YouTube series called Prax Girl, uh, who is a, a, a beautiful woman telling, uh, uh, telling people about praxeology in short lessons, basically. <laughs> so I got the structure from the book, for the book from that. So, so it, it explains praxeology from what a, what a priori means and then human action and the means and ends and just builds up like that. Uh, and I love that way of writing about it. Then I added a couple of chapters about counterfeiting and about hopeless argumentation ethics, which I find so fascinating. And then somewhere down the line, I got the idea to like a, a lot of the examples in the books uh, in the book are Robinson Crusoe examples. So I decided to make almost all of the examples into Robinson Crusoe things. And it turns out the Robinson Crusoe book is so old, so everything from it is free, in, including the illustrations. So this will be a beautifully illustrated book with quotes from, from Robinson Crusoe that fit the chapters. And that, that just made the entire process so enjoyable to, to, to have that, you know, red thread throughout the, uh, throughout the book. So, so have, uh, so this book has a, a consistency that I think maybe the the last book lacked a bit in the consistency department. But it was a great fun writing this, and I set up like another thing I promised myself was not to mention Bitcoin even once. So yeah, so I not I do not so subtly hint hint about it every every now and then, and people will know. But yeah. Uh, and I had two fantastic editors, Mel Schilling and Nico Lamanen. So Mel Mel did the first editing, and I had a couple of meetings with her, and she's very good at giving me good alternative words to use and like uh, synonyms I would never have thought of. And then I sat down with Nico, and like we plowed through the book together, section by section, and just riffed ideas off of it. How can we make the section better? Is this the optimal way of saying this? Like. So we've, we've put a lot of effort into, into making it concise. And I'm I, uh, lo- looking forward to see what people think about it, definitely. I can't wait for that. I give it forward to it. You always put a, a huge amount of thought and energy you know, into your books. And this Praxeology book I'm really looking forward to because I think that is a lost art. And bringing yeah. that to the world is really important because it feels like in some way, shape or form at the moment where... You know, we just don't have our bearings. There's a there's no real true north, and no, exactly. Axiology is a beautiful way to to bring us, you know, effectively bring us back to ground, groundless. Yeah, it is, and uh, it, it explains beautifully why you have to start from the individual when when trying to understand human human beings. You can't start from a collective standpoint, and you can't like squeeze mathematics into. Uh, into uh, economics because there's a difference between a price and a cost. A cost is always either lower or higher than a price. It's never equal to a price. If the price is lower, uh, if the cost is lower than the price, then you buy the good. If the if the cost is uh, higher than the good, then you don't buy the good. It's that simple. Uh, so cost is something in our brains. It's it's subjective, and that's what normal economics leaves out: the subjective nature of value. Uh, and how important that is uh, to understand anything, really. This is where I think Bitcoin's totally misunderstood on a global scale, too. Yeah. Back to that last point you raised that, you know, a glass of water for you or me is worth nothing, but a glass of water to a guy dying of thirst in the desert? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe a price. Diminishing marginal utility. (laughs) 
if you have a pool, another deciliter of water won't won't really match it to you. To add another quote to the to the mix uh, from a from a smart Bitcoin author, uh, maybe Bitcoin's best uh, feature I- in terms of monetary unit is is as the unit of account because it. Uh, it can help set the baseline for for everyone, and so oh. the store of value properties and the uh, and the yeah. uh, medium of exchange uh, they're they're great. But if we all just use the same unit of account, and then Oops. we can make these calculations. Someone smart said yeah. that. I don't remember who. Yeah, that. yeah. You don't remember who? Yeah, uh, it was. It was. It was uh, I just reread it in the sovereignty and independence. Can you do with you? It was me. Oh yes. Oh, <laughs> because this is so fun. Because, because I think the ax- the literal opposite of that now. So that I changed my mind to the complete one eighty of what I thought back then when I wrote that book. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Because like to me now, a unit of account might be too weird because of the when you have a completely stable money, you can never have stable prices, and we're so used to having stable prices. So that uh, Bitcoin might never function as a unit of account. Uh, we might need something else instead, like kilowatt hours or what, whatever. I don't know. But anyway, that's fun. I, I hope to improve my thinking over time. I have no, right. like, we left out that section in the editing process of the new re- rehashed version. No, anyway, no, no, there, there, there was there. Just reread it from that. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I should have edited it into the literal oh, opposite man. of what was in the text. <laughs> Anyway, another thing, Peter, that I want to discuss before we, before we're done here is our, uh, you know, the thing we've riffed on the most, and this is a, a a aspect of Bitcoin that we both feel is very underrated, and it's the time lock function. Yeah. So we have we have thought about like, you know, bitcoins can either be in warm storage, in lukewarm storage, or like Luke Dash Junior's <laughs> bitcoins were obviously in lukewarm storage and then cold storage. But uh, we've thought about something even colder than cold storage, and that's absolute zero uh, uh, storage for element zero, and that's yeah. basically time locking. When when you lock your bitcoins, there's a functionality in the protocol you can time lock your bitcoins for a certain amount of blocks so that no one including yourself cannot use them until a certain block height is reached and uh, this protects them not only from you know theft by others but also from your own drunken shenanigans <laughs> so uh, yeah what what are your thoughts on time lock and why is it so underrated give us the tldr or give us the uh, ldr L- uh, LR, give us the LR. <laughs> the long read. Well, I'm I'm so glad you brought this up because you know when we had that conversation, and I brought that up, and you're like, oh my goodness, this is I've just had a really deep thought, and I'm sitting on the end of the line, Dicky. Well, spit it out, man. Give us your genius. What have you got there? <laughs> and you're like, with your work with in yeah, abs- uh, everything divided by 21 million, talking about Bitcoin being element zero, and it just immediately twigged in your head that. You know, this is the absolute coldest of cold storage that you can leave your Bitcoin in. And you called it immediately, you know, element zero and absolute zero. And I was like, oh my God, that's another meme. Like, brilliant. And and where I think time locking doesn't really get a lot of love. It's been around for quite a long time, but time locking has, I believe, an opportunity to provide and bring in 
not only institutional change, but societal change on a level as important as Bitcoin. And this can't be under, underrated or understated because the, the ability to time lock an asset gives us the ability to effectively move an asset forward in time without any dilution, dispersion, inflation, deflation, whatever you want. It goes through yeah. with zero attenuation to that the ult- time in the, the future. The ultimate pension fund. <laughs> it it, it mm. is literally that. And, and I look at this and I think, I call Bitcoin basically in a way to use our tools within our system that, they, that we're working in now. I, I call Bitcoin the first triple point asset. You know, Bitcoin is the first asset in history that exists in three states at once. You know, the three functions of money, when you look at store of value, medium of exchange, unit of account, well, typically store of value has been the domain of gold uh, up until now, but now Bitcoin's a better gold than gold um, because not only do you get everything that you get with gold, but you get two tech innovations that I think are complete game changers in absolute digital scarcity and you get seizure resistance. So it's gold, but it's better better gold than gold. Then you look at medium exchange and I think, well, US dollars is great, but... Lightning is um, better. Well, lightning is better, but um, on top of that, Bitcoin is better. Why is Bitcoin better than that? Well, there's an immutable supply and issuance, so we know exactly how much is coming out for the next 10,000 years. We know exactly what the supply is going to be, and we know what the issuance is going to be. And then when you couple that functionality and that tech innovation with the innovation of having censorship resistant, meaning anyone who's got access to the internet who subscribes to the rules of the Bitcoin network can effectively place a transaction. In light of all the shit that has gone on in the world in the last 14 months, that is an incredibly valuable tool. That tool alone should be worth trillions and trillions of dollars. But the world hasn't woken up to the fact that this is really, really important. And then the final one, and this is where it probably has the most importance to time locking, is you look at the immutable ledger, which is effectively an upgrade on our double entry ledger system that we've used since the Renaissance. Now, all of a sudden, we have an immutable ledger that can never change. That's an innovation that we've never seen before in history. And you know, because it's accounting, I just put it down to the fact that it may as well be accounting and Everyone on earth hates accounting because it's so freaking boring. But this is where, for me, I look at it and I think, holy shit, this innovation is unbelievable. If people actually understood the power of not being able to change anything into the future from what's happened in the past, all of a sudden, you know, when you think about wars, when you think about fights, conflicts, things like that, all of a sudden, you know, all through up, up until, you know, from the beginning of time up until this point in time, the winners wrote history. Now, for the first time, we have a record of history that it doesn't matter what someone's subjective take on the fight was, it is going to be on the blockchain every transaction that happened. And this is where it is a complete paradigm shift for, for humanity as a, as a whole. And now, that was a little off track. Let me get back to time locking. Those- can I just make a point that ties into that? Because yeah. like the the Austrian view of capital is different from uh, every other uh, economic school. Uh, you know, all the bullshit schools. Uh, and it is that money is never idle. It's always, it always provides a service to, to its uh, owner. And mm-hmm. if you, if you're not using it for exchange, you're saving it, which means that it provides you with a service of certainty. It removes uncertainty from the future to a certain extent. 
Yeah. And fiat money on, can only do that temporarily. Uh, uh, the effect diminishes over time since we print more fiat. Bitcoin, on the other hand, provides you with like more and more certainty the, the longer you hodl it. So it's the inverse of fiat in that sense. Yeah, I'm yes. going to have make some other points about time locking. Sorry for interrupting you. Go on with the rest of the thought here. Well, well, this is where you raise a really good point in that, you know, if you save in dollars, it basically, uh, it's like a exponential decay or is that what they call exponential decay? Whatever the term is, but you know, it goes to zero over time. And if you save in Bitcoin, you get an exponential rise in value. And this is where I look at, and I think time locking has, time locking is so important because I look at the applications from a financial perspective, like I live in the finance world, so I can't help but look at the financial implications of a tool like this. But but I look at it from a number of different ways. Firstly, if we look at it from the ability to firstly save our, our money into the future, we can basically send it into the future, like you said, time lock free of any interruption from us or from anyone else because we effectively can't take that transaction back once it's been sent. Now, there are two types of time lock. There's a time lock where you can set it into the future and then you can take it back if you want to. And But we're talking about the time lock that you send into the future and you can't take it back. Yeah, so that's, that's the, the interesting one. That's, one. <laughs> that's the one that's really important to me because I look at it and I think, okay, well, think about this from a pension system. I can go out today and clients might have 10 Bitcoin and I plan they're going to live for the next 20 years. Okay, they're going to receive half a Bitcoin every year for the next 20 years. And all of a sudden, you know, their their value of their, you know, what they're receiving is going to go up or their buying power is going to go up exponentially over the next 20 years. That's the first one. But what really gets me excited to the point you just raised previously is what happens when this starts getting used as collateral against government bonds, corporate bonds, residential mortgage-backed securities, all this other credit that no one really wants because we know it's shite, but they're going to have to be forced to be using some form of collateral to actually sell it to you. And I look at this and I think gold has sort of put its hand up and said, hey, you should use us to to back your bonds. And what happens is we'll sell you a hundred-year bond and you know, there's been some talk you know, in circles that I listen to that, you know, the US government will come up with a hundred year bond and they'll put 5% of that bond into gold. And so even if the, the bond of the value of the bond goes to zero in relative terms, you've still got 5% of that in gold. So it should hold its purchasing power over time. And I think, think about this from a thought experiment. What happens if they use Bitcoin time locked over that period of time? And what's going to happen is you're going to have for a one-year bond, you might put up one Bitcoin as collateral. But for a 100-year bond, you might put up 0.01 of a Bitcoin. One one-hundredth of a Bitcoin. Because but, but, there's going to be so much value accrued into the future. It still raises the question, why would you want to, to own it via some shitty bond and not just, you know, time lock, take custody of your own keys and time lock your own Bitcoin? Like, that's, that's well, the you proper not, way to you do it. You and I are never doing that. But what if you're an insurance company which doesn't have the ability yeah. to do that? Th this world of, you know, Bitcoin as a financial asset with custodians everywhere. Yeah. Like the way I view it, the, 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 the Bitcoin has, you know, put a big spotlight on onto governments and corporations and showing us what they really are. 
f- fictitious yes. entities that don't really exist. Like they're made up of individuals, and right. only an individual can all uh, can be a Bitcoin, a, a, or a collective of individuals if it's a multi-sig thing. Right. But, but but it's still it's still so individual. There's, since the asset, the information about the asset is the asset, and so on. This is an individual thing. So all of these other things, they in my mind, they're sort of paper bitcoins and and don't really count. And there's another aspect to play the devil's advocate about time lock. This is Adam Back's worry about it, and that is that Bitcoin will fork at some point in the future. We cannot know if it will or not. In which, like the time lock Bitcoin, could be at risk of being, you know, unreachable forever. And that's a pity, <laughs> but I but still, all you Bitcoin in it then. <laughs> no, exactly. You, uh, as you say, like the the uh, potential upside is so big, so you only need to put a tiny, tiny amount, and and you know, store it for a couple of generations, and your grandchildren are probably safe. Like yeah. that's the point of this thing. And also, I think that there might be an overestimation. Uh, I'm not calling. Adam back wrong here. I hope I can say this without, you know, <laughs> arguing against <laughs> against uh, better knowledge. But uh, <laughs> at some point in the future, Bitcoin will not change anymore at all. Like we're, 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 we're there's there's that point also, and I suspect that we're closer to that point than we think we are, and that's a good thing. Because if it doesn't, uh, the, the way I view Bitcoin upgrades and BIPs, uh, improvement proposals, is like if everyone agrees that it's a good idea, it gets implemented. If we don't agree that it's a, a good idea, it doesn't get implemented, which is like, what's the definition of good and bad? Like, isn't the definition of good that everyone thinks it's good? So, so what that means is that Bitcoin can only get better over time. It cannot get worse because we define what better and worse means by what happened in Bitcoin upgrades. <laughs> uh, maybe that's not the case exactly right now, but at some point in the future, it definitely is. Which means yeah. Bitcoin can only get better. And the, the real the real fucking mindfuck here, sorry for swearing so much, but I want to put an exclamation mark on this, is by proxy... That means humanity can only get better from this point onward. Like that's that, that's hopium in squared. It's it's pure optimism. Since Bitcoin can only get better over time, that means we can only get better over time from now on. Boom. Uh, I mean, I can't I can't stop thinking about that. Well, it's a huge thought because you know you sit there and go to so many different things on that. You know, think of the upgrades to humanity that that brings and. You know, I live in a world of finance, so sadly, and, you know, we're on a couple of spaces together um, in the last few months, and you vibe really high. I mean, really high. And I want to live in that world of vibing high because it's a beautiful place to be. Sadly, my day-to-day means I've got to sell Bitcoin as a way to get rich. Oh well, I I, uh, I would like to live in the financial world from time to time too, and get a bit richer. You know, just being philosopher, you don't become rich being a philosopher. That's for sure. <laughs> you, you become not Yet. not money not money rich, but but like uh, I enjoy my life a lot. That's and I, I view that as 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 the true wealth of uh, like that's that's the thing. That's the thing to aim for. Oh. I, I think that's a noble pause. And 
it's funny you say this, you know, you don't get rich being a philosopher. And I had this conversation with my brother yesterday. We were talking about homeschooling and if money was no object, what I would love to do is literally bring the best minds to my home for maybe, you know, two or three weeks, maybe a month to download what the best minds in the world can deliver to me and my family as far as thoughts, interesting things to do. I think there's, you know, we're not living in a time that's too far from, you know, people basically calling up Knut and saying, hey, I want you to come and talk to my family. I want you to download everything that you know about praxeology and Bitcoin into my kids and myself so we can learn to think better. And we're not that far from it. No, I, I think we're there already. I, I mean, if you ever invite the best minds in the world to your house, can I come too? Because I'd really like to hear that conversation. <laughs> it's an open house. I'd, I'd love to have that. And, you know, in, in, in some small way, I try and do that for my clients with Bitcoin in that, you know, you've been very gracious in coming and talking to my clients and they've benefited enormously from having, you know, the experience of listening to you and, you know, hearing someone's story who is clearly very clever, has a very um, analytical brain, great critical thinking, and has left everything they know in the traditional world to go into Bitcoin full-time and effectively study and deliver that message to the world. That is a hugely powerful message in and of itself. Oh, thank you for those kind words. This is, this is going to be an embarrassing episode, Luke. I- yeah of course it warms my heart enormously that you say these things and like it gives me uh, i would be a liar if i i i didn't say that the attention fueled my fire because like being recognized for something that you're passionate about is one of the better feelings you can have in this life of course like and it, regardless of what you're doing if you're if you're a good cook and people enjoy your food that's the best feeling you can have as a cook, I guess. Like, yeah. Particularly when I think you contrast that to where you were pre-Bitcoin, right? Yeah. I feel some, somewhat like that too. And yeah. I personally feel like I've found my tribe with Bitcoiners. Yeah. And it's a global, global tri- tribe or, or it's people who are, who reject the idea of being in a tribe. <laughs> in a way. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. The tribe of people are rejecting the idea of tribalism. Yeah, which is which is so beautiful. Yeah, so it, it's funny. I think we got a little bit off track on the time locking, but to me, I think the time locking has huge implications if we can actually harness the power of it. It can totally redefine finance. It it, it redefines society. Full stop. Imagine being able to send a gift to your future, you know, to to your descendants that is effectively going to ensure that they can have the best opportunity to self actualize and live their best life without having to worry about, you know, the base layers of Maslow's need hierarchy, like food and shelter and, and those sorts of things. And they can spend their time on just pursuing their, you know, their dreams and aspirations. Yeah. Uh, while providing others with value because otherwise it wouldn't work. Thank you. <laughs> uh, oh yes. Uh, yeah. I'd like the, the, this is an official shout out to, or, or request from me and Peter to all the developers out there to design an app for us for 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 deep freeze bitcoin like can you with a nice graphical interface and it, i envisioned just a a phone app with some sort of dial on it or maybe a hardware wallet with a dial on it 
uh, and you 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 turn the knob, and the uh, there's some graphic on the app that 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 shows it becoming more and more frozen. Like so, so you have the freezing graphic going on in the background, and you time lock your Bitcoin into the future. There could also be another inf- interface with like the flux capacitor from the Back to the Future movies, which. <laughs> That could also be a, a graphic interface for such an app, but like, what the world needs, according to this conversation, is a an app where you can easily time lock a portion of your bitcoins. You just get a QR code, send some bitcoin there, and turn the knob into the future. Uh, I think that would be a beautiful thing. That'd be really good. I think yeah, yeah. The the best website I've seen to date for doing that is coinb.in. So. Maybe if we have a shout out to those boys, they can have a listen to this and then yeah, come yeah. back to you with something. I, I don't know them personally there, but coinb.in. Yeah. Look at that. They've they've got that. Now, one one caveat on this is that one one thing that I've been reluctant to to send any meaningful amounts into a time lock into a distant future is the fact that um it doesn't run the multi seek yet. No. Nope. From my understanding. So I want I basically want multiple fuck ups that I can basically draw on if I'm sending things into the future. Yeah, I was actually going to uh, ask about kind of a practical question because uh, you used used the language of receive here, but I, I feel like currently in the implementation, that's probably useful for pitching the idea. But in practical terms, it's more like now you are allowed to spend from this address again, right? So yeah, yeah. Where I see the the risk really being, and probably you both uh, have the same thing, is what happens if you lose control of those keys. And and I I think you somewhat answered it, Peter, with the kind of you you want to you want to reduce the the surface for being able to lose control of the keys. But I think I think that's really important. And uh, I would almost want some kind of situation where it gets time locked, but then you can you can send it to an address of your choosing after a certain period of time or something like that, and actually do the receive in a in a real sense. Because, uh, for for example, if you if you have a case where it's it's supposed to be an inheritance situation and you want to give a certain amount to your uh, descendants, uh, point one of a bitcoin every ten years for a mm-hmm. hundred whatever, um, then uh, to have some kind of mechanism of actually doing that as opposed to it, it becomes unlocked because then whoever has control of those keys gets the gets the control. But if you have some kind of system like that, I, I, I don't know if that's... If yeah, that's- yeah, but, yeah, but you run into the same dilemma, though, to play the devil's advocate here, because you need yeah. to have the, the keys for the next wallet as, uh, anyway. So that, that's the thing. Uh, but about the time locking in intervals, I wrote an article about this uh, years back, about, yeah. uh, you know, uh, halving with the, the actual Bitcoin halvings, you halve the, ti- the amount that is time locked. And for your descendants, and assuming that uh, Bitcoin goes up a hundred percent in value with every halving, you get an uh, 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 the same amount. Yeah, yeah, you get the purchase. same. Yeah, exactly, same amount of purchasing power forever. If if that holds true over time, yeah. and uh, I think there's a very good chance that that holds true all the way to up until the year two thousand one hundred forty, at least, if not even better. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, uh, you know what? Um, you know what I think could actually work from time locking from a much shorter period, not not a hundred years into the future, which we probably shouldn't have. We probably should have started here. And I'm just going to uh-huh. explain 
what time locking looks like before <laughs> we go back into you know where we've been. But what what I find really interesting about time locking is is that you know when you time lock a Bitcoin and you send it to the future, it has it is no longer in this wallet, and it's no longer in that wallet. It is literally suspended in a superposition between two wallets. Oh yeah. So Schrodinger's this one. Exactly. It is Schrodinger's Bitcoin. And this is where what I find really interesting is that, you know, people talk about, oh, what happens if there's a a quantum attack, you know, quantum computing attack and all these sorts of, you know, um, relatively fanciful thoughts at the moment on, you know, an attack in the Bitcoin network. But let's just play that out for a, a very, you know, for fun, for shits and giggles. You know, if we had tomorrow someone come up with a quantum computer that could effectively take Bitcoin from our wallet because it can break SHA-256. Any Bitcoin that was sitting in a wallet that wasn't time-locked would effectively be gone. So what would that look like? If we play this out, probably the first wallet to have its, its coin stolen would be Satoshi's wallet with a million Bitcoin sitting in there. Then I would thought maybe maybe the Coinbase wallet, which has got 2 million Bitcoins or whatever they've got. Then you've got GBGC, you'd take that wallet, and then you'd work your way down the list of from highest to lowest value wallets. Now, what's really interesting about time locking and the fact that you've effectively got a Schrodinger's Bitcoin from a security perspective, you, when you send a time lock Bitcoin, your Bitcoin's not in this wallet that you sent it from, and it's not in the wallet that it's meant to arrive in until that certain block height. So if you're doing a very short dated time lock, maybe a, you know, a difficulty adjustment period, like two weeks or four weeks or five weeks or 10 weeks, whatever that might be, one year, all of a sudden, if someone comes up with a, a way to crack SHA-256 tomorrow and your Bitcoin is time locked for one year, then your Bitcoin is safe because it's not in this wallet. It's not in that wallet. It's in this superposition that doesn't exist until that block height is reached. And this is where all of a sudden, to your point about Bitcoin being element zero at absolute zero, this is the ultimate form of security that you can fundamentally have. And that gives you the greatest protection from effectively a quantum attack. Yeah, another, another aspect of that is that if, the, if there's, there, there are multiple ways of debunking the uh, quantum computing attack, but just for argument's sake, let's say the SHA-256 is broken tomorrow. Like, yeah. Uh, that means uh, most of the internet is fucked, but Bitcoin still has a chance to reorg and and uh, come to a consensus of what is Bitcoin later down the line. What probably will happen, though, is that the difficulty will stay the same and will not adjust until uh, a, a lot of time will pass because a lot of mining power will be lost. So it's like cutting off all the... Uh, that's that's the way I see it. And please, you, you know, like, comment, and subscribe, and <laughs> debate me on this uh, if I'm wrong. But the way I see it then is that the, the, there's more time passing be, uh, between each block, and that's the time we have. So, so essentially, miners dropping off is giving us more time to upgrade the protocol to 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 uh, solve the problem. Great, totally. uh, and that means that <laughs> if you just time lock your Bitcoin until the next difficulty adjustment, they're probably safe forever. <laughs> you just you see what I mean? Transaction every two weeks, roughly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yep. you, you could program that, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So like this is cold storage and this is deep freeze storage and it only needs to be until the next uh, difficulty adjustment. It, it's uh, just mind blowing that. Yeah. Like, I'd, I'd love to pick like someone like Yakumo Soka's brain on that. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's a Call good. Me. Can you can you get me on that call? I'd love yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here uh, we go. In uh, six months, we'll get all uh, all four of us together then and uh, do a pot on that. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah, but there's so much here and there's so much potential in this time locking thing that pe- people aren't thinking about this enough. That's the conclusion. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and you know, in in the superficial world that I live, I I can't help but find ways to think about how do we draft demand and how do we shrink supply? You know, supply is quite fluid. And what I really want to do is I want to make sure that every Bitcoin that's off exchange potentially, and, and this is a dangerous comment, so I'll just preface this by saying, you do you. Do not take this as advice <laughs> or anything, but it's a cool thought experiment. If we have all these Bitcoins off exchange and in cold storage and effectively, you know, at absolute zero in a time lock, they can't come back onto the market for sale. And one thing that really shits me is that SBF, he robbed us of a data point last year. You know, we should have had a blow off top or two years ago, whatever it was, 20, December 21. You know, that little turd sold Bitcoins to his clients. Then he handed those Bitcoins to his, you know, made at Alameda. They immediately sold those Bitcoins on the exchange suppressing the price of Bitcoin for dollars to then go and buy shit coins and pump the shit coin price. So we got doubly jammed on that. And now for the rest of history, we don't have a really nice, neat four-year period where if you've just held Bitcoin for four years, you uh, don't I don't believe that would have happened anyway. Like mm. you, you can't, like the past is, uh, this is, this is like the, uh, the fallacy of all this, uh, I know you, this is your profession and everything and the managing risk and looking, <laughs> but, but it comes down, it boils down to the all your models are destroyed th- thesis because like 100%. these predictions are always at some point they break. They're, they're yeah. good for managing risk because they play out the way they do most of the time, but the time that they don't, that's when you should probably just been sitting on your stack and, and you know, N- not done any of the financial stuff. That's it. <laughs> but, well, well here, here's, here's something that I agree wholeheartedly with it. They are all broken until they're done. And this is, bear with me, this sets us up for a great philosophical conversation, I think, in that Excellent. So plan, plan B, I personally view as a net benefit to Bitcoin. And I look at the last, say, cycle of Bitcoin and I think, I know this is contentious. I know where I am. Don't worry. I know my audience. So just bear with me. So Plan B and Michael Saylor in the last four or five years of Bitcoin have been the most influential people in the space, I believe, for, from a normie and new perspective. Both of those people, I think Plan B has been responsible for bringing more eyeballs to Bitcoin than just about anyone else. And he did that on a model that was fundamentally, I think, directionally correct, but broken to the upside before it was broken to the downside. And he cops a lot of heat. And I'm not going to go into, you know, him talking about referral links and things like that, because I think he's a net benefit for Bitcoin because what he did was really important in that he brought more eyeballs to Bitcoin than just about anyone else on earth. And yes, it was based on that greed and, hey, come and get rich and whatever. But 
our job as a community is to, once people come to this community or come to the space to get rich, it's our job to do as best a job as we can to educate them about everything else about Bitcoin. And I feel like personally, I didn't do a good enough job to secure those, say, 2 million or 10 million new people to Bitcoin that when the model broke to whatever, they just said, oh, we're out of here, we're, we're going to get flung out, out of the gravity well of Bitcoin. And this is where I think the attention that he brought to Bitcoin was a good thing. And there was an opportunity to get more and more Bitcoiners in this space if we had have been more organized or had better education because we're effectively, a, it's such a cottage thought slash network. It's difficult to, to organize around that. Yeah. Uh, so many people bought into that model as well and that took it seriously. And it's, uh, yeah, which is just a, basically a, a rejection of <laughs> Austrian economics, which is funny in the Bitcoin space. And plan B, uh, reputation wise, is going to need a plan B. <laughs> That's the conclusion I've <laughs> drawn from the whole deal. <laughs> and, I kind of like the rainbow rainbow chart that Eric Wall did that people started taking seriously. And he literally did that as a joke, like uh, to point out that you can't make these predictions. And it's been following that rainbow chart pretty closely since. So people start taking it seriously. (laughs) It's just, uh, yeah, but that's that's finance for you. (laughs) Yeah. Can I tell you a funny story about Plan B? Of course. So I've, I've spoken to him. He's come and talked to our clients and, you know, it's nice having a finance guy talk about Bitcoin from a different perspective. I try and get as many different perspectives as possible. And I had a great chat to him for maybe an hour before he came and had a, had a talk to us. And I said, um, we were talking and he said, yeah, I think I've got a new model that's, that's better than the last one. I was like, oh, that's really exciting. But um, just to avoid all the hate that you're going to get from the existing you know, community, you're going to need a NIM account for your NIM account. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's it. Can you please release this new model under a new new account? I can't think of anything funnier than the whole community getting behind this new model that he's created and then not be on a not be on a podcast for six or twelve months, however it is, finally appear on a podcast and the second he opens his mouth, the whole Bitcoin community is gonna lose their minds thinking this guy's got a Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But <laughs> yeah, but I do think that after that thing failed, people have been paying less attention to charts in general, and yeah. to to you know chart people who who are basically you know tea leaf uh, astrologists. Uh, this is uh, this is this is the hard part. You look like I look at it because I feel like compelled to for client knowledge and the rest of it. But when you break it down. It is such an insignificant look at what is actually happening here. Yeah. And you think if you really understood what this thing meant, what yeah, this yeah. thing is capable of, yeah, yeah. like is any price going to give you any no, satisfaction? No, no, everything no. divided by twenty one million. That's that's the only the that's the only conclusion you can draw when once once you get over those hurdles. Like that, and, and this is the thing I, I find amusing with you know what we do is you know People don't comprehend the societal change that this thing will bring in. It's it's really about the money first, but I'm here for the revolution because all of a sudden the change that this is going to bring in is absolutely enormous. We can't even be yeah, but imagine. The, the, and this is the, and this is also I talked to Jeff both a lot about this and that we need to be humble there because like 
it does require you to reject something that you believe to be true all your life, which is fiat money. You yeah. believed it to be real, and you believe that it functioned the way it should, and you believe that there were sound decisions behind it, but the central bank was needed, and so on and so forth. There's so much. You have to rethink. So you have to stop believing in money, basically. And, yeah. and for most people, they're, they're never going to get over that hurdle, and it's going to take generations before, before that. Some, some of us are capable of you know, flipping that switch, but I think most people uh, aren't. It's just too much of a hurdle. No, because yeah, I, I think a lot of people's identity is built on that, and that oh, of course, is part of their core identity. And it's very, very difficult to change anyone's core identity. And yeah, yeah. This uh, is where orange pilling people is so difficult. Yeah, like and you on, know, on the stuff that means stuff, like orange pilling people on that, particularly in Western society is near on impossible because we've got pretty good property law. We've got great property rights. Yes, there's been some indiscretions. We'd say, you know, the SWIFT system taking the foreign reserves of Russia and the, the Canadian truckers. Yeah. This is a problem that we in the West don't really have to worry about day to day. And this is where Alex Gladstein's work is so powerful, but it gets lost on us in the West because it's like, uh, well, it doesn't affect me, so it's not my problem. That's also why why people from Zimbabwe or Argentina get Bitcoin much faster uh, than we do we could, because they know uh, how, how bad inflation is. Uh, but what we don't see is that we, uh, normal inflation, nor, quote-unquote normal inflation, is just hyperinflation in slow motion. It's the same phenomenon. At one point, every fiat currency has to hyperinflate. Because there's no, there's no other way. You have to increase debts. Like when when you don't have the capital, you have to pretend you have the capital to to keep this you know bullshit machine rolling. <laughs> and it's so fascinating. And uh, people don't realize what they're missing out on. Not not the financial gain, but just being in the Bitcoin mindset. They're missing so much by not being in that head, headspace. You know, Luke, you, you're fairly, fairly new to Bitcoin still, Luke. So, so you know how, how, what, what it has done to, to your you know, view of the world and, and your mind in general and how, uh, how you appreciate stuff. And the, the praxeology rabbit hole, it's, it's so good to deep dive into because you get such an... I mean, the first, the first reaction is to be completely cynic and you know, uh, angry and depressed of the state of the world. But when you truly understand praxeology and human action, you get in- insanely grateful instead and thankful for every, every, everyone in the private sector, basically, because we're all part of the same machine making, making everything work. So, and even the people in the public sector, because they act as consumers, they act as capitalists, they act as, they act, and everyone who acts is beneficial to the entire economic machine. And it's beautiful, and you 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 come to a state of holy shit! It functions despite all of this violent interventionism and money printing, and it still functions because it's so powerful. The free market, gratefulness, thankfulness that's that's where this ultimately leads to, and it makes life beautiful. Like I, I went on a morning walk here, so as I said, I woke up early on a morning walk. Uh, uh, next to the Mediterranean and just watching the sunrise 
and just so incredibly grateful to be alive and 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 you know being able to do that it's just insanely beautiful oh i'm getting teary-eyed here yeah where were we uh, <laughs> well, I was, I was going to say is, uh, Peter, if you had uh, something, we can go into that. But we're also uh, about an hour and a half in. Um, maybe we should uh, wrap this one up because I feel like uh, we can probably get you on pretty regularly, Peter. This has been a fantastic chat. So I, I uh, re- have really enjoyed it. And I just want to say that. But uh, did you have any uh, any other topics you wanted to cover here, Peter? There's probably a few, but I will just sort of maybe just make a comment on the back of what Knut just said. For me personally... I work in and around finance. That is literally what I do 24-7. And for me personally, I can tell you what Bitcoin has delivered me is peace of mind. I was asked recently in an interview, what keeps me up at night? And it was alluding to Bitcoin keeping me up at night because I'm a Bitcoin advocate. I'm a Bitcoiner. And that is the last thing that keeps me up at night. If people understood the problems that we have with the broader financial system, they'd effectively shit the bed knowing what's coming down the pipe and they'd put a whole lot more money into Bitcoin. So for me, I'm probably share a, a statement like you, Knut. I'm, I'm very grateful for you know what Bitcoin's given me. It's given me clarity. It's given me peace of mind. It's given me um, somewhat of a purpose to, to help people get into this space. And you know, I look at the, the job you do, the work you do, and you know, just in awe of, you know, your level of thinking, the clarity that you deliver, and being able to piggyback off those thoughts and share them. With Here we go too. again. <laughs> well, well, it's true. It's, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not pissing in your pocket and telling you it's raining. This, these are real thoughts and feelings that, you know, I'm grateful to you for being able to share that and get that down. So, however, you know, in light of all the good work you've done, still, I think outside of the meme you've produced, the best work you've done. Isn't sold fuck you money. So I want to. I'm getting a guitar for for Australia, so you can have that uh, rendition of that song. So, oh, perfect. Uh, I'd love to play that in Australia. So yeah, expect fuck you money. Uh, that's an excuse for not coming up with an interesting enough talk. <laughs> Imagine getting on stage, Bitcoin alive, and just yeah, yeah. out with the guitar. Uh, fuck you, fuck you, I got fuck you money, fuck you. <laughs> No, on a serious note, Peter, I'm looking forward so much to to coming to Sydney next week and hang out with you guys. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, have a continue this discussion over a couple of beers and whatever. And uh, yeah, uh, it's going to be great. Uh, looking forward to seeing everyone there. And and your, your brother, we forgot to tell the story about your brother who actually time-locked a, a ton of Bitcoin into the year... Uh, a gazillion thousand and forty or something. Yeah. <laughs> do you do you want to run through that pretty quickly? We probably should. Yeah. Let's let's do that. I I, okay. I sort of hinted at it. So yeah. <laughs> okay. Well. So um, Mike is a really deep thinker. I'd put him in your category of deep thinkers, Knut. And he wanted to send a Bitcoin into the year twenty one forty four as a way to effectively ensure that miners would be incentivized to keep mining for four years after the halving or the block rewards stopped, block subsidies stopped. And so he literally sent a Bitcoin into the future of 120 years there. And I told you, Knut, <laughs> he did it and he, your comment was, what, does he understand how much that is? So he, he knows full well exactly that that is going to be a significant amount of money. And you know, by my calculations in today's dollars, 
that'll work out at roughly close to about eight and a half trillion dollars. And so what he did was, yeah, what he did was he, he set the, the Bitcoin into the future. He also published the private key. And so if anyone wants to read Bitcoin is time traveling energy, there is an article that was done for Bitcoin magazine that you can read. And in that magazine, he, or in that article, he outlines why he did it, how he did it, the private key that is attached there. And then if anyone can unbreak that time lock, there's a Bitcoin sitting in there. But he's such a deep thinker. He thought, how can I ensure that this Bitcoin that I send into the future is going to be taken in the future? And he said, you know what I'll do is I'm going to leave the same amount of Bitcoin that I send to the future. I'm going to leave that same amount in the wallet today so that if someone reads the article, takes the private key, can basically swipe the Bitcoin that I leave in this wallet today. So he's effectively put two Bitcoins, one in the wallet today and one into the future. And that wallet took 15 minutes to get swiped for Bitcoin. A whole Bitcoin? Well, he actually did it in a staggered event. I say whole Bitcoin for basically simplicity, but what he did was he did 2144, I think there's half a Bitcoin. And then four years after that, it's 0.25. Four years all right, that, all right. One, two, yeah. five. It looks like a block reward cycle. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, nice. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and so sure enough, within 15 minutes, that private key, um, basically a web bot had crawled it and swiped the Bitcoin from that wallet address. But what's really funny and how you can tell Bitcoin's the only thing that anyone really cares about is that apparently he did the same for Ethereum and that Ethereum coin lasted over a year. No one gives a <laughs> shit about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, tr- good luck time locking Ethereum. Yeah. <laughs> uh, literally, yeah. there's so much we can talk about. I'd love to talk about yeah. a whole heap of things, but well, I understand. What's a good metaphor for time locking Ethereum? Yeah, that, that's that's like having the door to a safe deposit out in nature somewhere and you open the door and just throw something on the other side and close the door again and there's just no walls. <laughs> like that means government try to stop Bitcoin. But... Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The show is also sponsored and produced by Consensus Network, the first Bitcoin-only publishing house. Consensus specializes in translations of Bitcoin books and also publishes original titles in English and many other languages. Check out bitcoinbook.shop or consensus.network to see everything Consensus has to offer. We're also always looking for new contributors. Whether you have a book you want to publish, you want to help translate books into your native language, or you have some other way you want to get involved. So if you want to help spread the Bitcoin message, reach out to us by Twitter or email. Details are in the show notes. And finally, you can check out knutsvonholm.com for everything Knut including some great Everything Divided by 21 Million merch and the Infinity Red Limited Edition wine. That's knutsvonholm.com for everything Knut. Anyway, Peter, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting your brother as well in uh, Australia. Uh, you probably, uh, we probably talked about that before. I have two brothers uh, and I riff on ideas with them all the time. And it's, it's a blessing to have brothers to riff ideas on, uh, definitely. Uh, and it it helps your thinking a lot to have that kind of uh, idea riffing. Yeah, what's the word? Because you know what, it it really is a lonely place, Bitcoin, without finding the community. And 
This is where yeah. Bitcoin Twitter, I think, is a fabulous place. Actually, get going to meetups and conferences, things like that, is a great way to meet Bitcoiners. And actually, the social layer of Bitcoin, I think, is the most fun. Yeah. 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 Which is why, oh, that we need to make that announcement as well. The Orange Pill app is an official sponsor of the uh, of Bitcoin Live and the official uh, Bitcoin social layer app for for Bitcoin Live. So if you're going to Bitcoin Live, I, I mean, this is bullshit since this will be released after Bitcoin Live. But <laughs> make sure to download the uh, Orange Pill app anyway because it's going to be at every Bitcoin conference. There's bound to be a, an Orange Pill app user. So yeah. No. Shout out to those guys, or to shout out to us. I'm an I advisor for the Orange Bill app, so I'm I'm biased, but <laughs> shameless shill. <laughs> well done. And I was just going to say, well, it's not even just a shameless shill. It's a, they, they are a sponsor of this podcast too, so it's fine. But the uh, personal uh, story is that just from the Northern Lightning Conference in Bergen that we were just in, uh, I couldn't find one person's Twitter handle, but we ended up connecting on Orange Bill app instead. And then and then Amazing. we found the Twitter handles afterwards, but uh, yeah, it it it, uh, it worked. It was great, and uh, yeah, um, Orange Pill app it works. So use it for conferences, meetups. I, I keep connecting with people all, uh, all the time here in Finland, so it's it's uh, it's really good, really useful. Yeah, that's nice. a good tool. Uh, good people. Anyway, thanks a lot, Peter, and uh, see you when that uh, the. Day after tomorrow, no, two days after tomorrow, I guess, or somewhere okay. around that. Yeah, uh, I don't know who's. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll have to arrange some where I'm being picked up and everything when I arrive. So, but uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing you soon. Can't wait. It's gonna be great. Luke, good up. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This has been the Freedom Footprint Show. Thanks for listening. Thanks again, Peter. This has been a fantastic conversation. <laughs>